Good morning. My name is Emily Hamilton. I'm the pastor of missions here at CPC. And today we are continuing through our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples about what it looks like to be part of the kingdom community that he is creating. And we've been talking for the last few weeks about how one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he is raising the bar. He is taking well-known portions of the Old Testament law and raising the bar, calling his disciples not just to live out the bare minimum, but to live out the heart of what God desires for his people and their relationships with one another. And in our text today, Jesus raises the bar for us on what it looks like to respond to people that mistreat us, to people that we experience as our enemies. So some of you know that before I moved to Minnesota, uh, my husband and I lived and worked in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa, which on a weekend like this feels really different. Uh, and we were in the eastern part of the country, which is beautiful, uh, resilient, amazing people, but it is never a place that you would ever find listed on safest places in the world to live. It is a place where there are over 100 active armed groups. It is highly militarized. There is ongoing violent conflict. And I think for a lot of us, when we hear the word enemy, that's the kind of thing that pops into our minds. We think of rebel groups and wars and bombs and violence and gangs. And thankfully, many of us here are privileged enough that we are not really directly caught up in that kind of violence or oppression on a day-to-day -day basis. And so when we hear Jesus use the word enemy, we tend to think, I don't have any enemies, because we don't often experience enmity in that way. We're not politicians negotiating government shutdowns or managing nuclear codes. We're not action heroes in a movie facing the choice to kill or be killed. And besides, we are nice people. Up here, you call it Minnesota nice. Down from where I'm from, we are just blessing people's hearts. And I think for a lot of us, when we hear Jesus use the word enemy, we think, I'm a nice person. I don't have enemies. And so we are really tempted to just brush past these words of Jesus as if they don't really apply to us. We let ourselves off the hook. But if there's anything that we've come to know about Jesus over the last few weeks, we know that off the hook is not where he's taking us. Actually, he will say things that implicate all of us, whether our enemies are political and social, or whether they are people that we go to school with, or people who have the desk next to ours, or people that we feel afraid of and try to avoid, or maybe it's just the people that we lie in bed to, in bed with next to at night, or people that we sit across the dinner table from. Because these are the relationships where we know what it feels like to be mistreated, to be slighted, or for one reason or another, made to feel afraid. And part of what Jesus tells his disciples in our passage today both raises the bar and invites all of us into a little bit more honesty to say, yeah, actually, I do have enemies. 
So I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bible if you have one. There's some in the pew racks in front of you or these little journal Bibles as well. Uh, We are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. And Jesus is continuing on with his disciples, and he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, with that, what we have here are the final two antitheses in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And they all follow a three-part pattern. First, Jesus gives us the traditional teaching, you have heard it said, And then he gives us the new command, but I say to you. And then he gives us some snapshots or vignettes that illustrate creative ways to keep the command that he is giving. And these snapshots are not meant to be exhaustive. They do not name every single situation we could ever think of, but instead, they are more like pointers that get us on the right track. They are creative examples of what it looks like to live out the new command that Jesus gives. So in this first section, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament law. He pulls from Leviticus 24, which says, If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Now, this was called the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, and it's actually found in ancient documents that predate Israel's law, and the relative benefit of the law is that it's meant to check unmitigated revenge. So when someone mistreats you, you are not allowed to go beyond what was done to you. But the new command that Jesus gives says, don't resist the one who is evil, or in other words, Don't oppose them by paying back what was done to you. Repayment shouldn't even be part of your math here. Break the wrong for wrong cycle completely. And then rather than give the disciples a whole list of how to apply this new command and in what situations, which is what the original laws of retaliation did, Jesus gives a few instructions and snapshots that illustrate what he's talking about. And these snapshots would have felt immediately relevant to Jews living in first century Palestine under Roman occupation. 
All of the examples point beyond a tit-for-tat way of relating, and they actually show ways that we can creatively engage mistreatment in a way that isn't about getting even, but also isn't about just pretending like there's no conflict. So what do I mean? Well, the slap on the right cheek would have been assumed as something much more than just bodily harm, which is pretty bad on its own. But to slap someone on the right cheek with the right hand in a culture that used the right hand for pretty much everything, you have to use the back of the right hand. And to use the back of the hand for something like that would have been considered especially degrading and injurious. So to turn the other cheek would be a way of challenging that humiliation without pretending that everything is fine, but also without going on the offense. Or if you were being sued unjustly, Jesus says, and they demand your tunic, which was the undergarment, Jesus says, give them your cloak, the outer garment as well, and basically stand there naked, shaming the unjust party, exposing their cruelty, and then, again, not acting like everything is just fine, but don't hurt them back. Or if a Roman officer conscripts you to carry a load for him one mile, which was legal, a Roman soldier could stop anyone that they wanted who maybe had a mule or a donkey or a pack animal and make them carry things for them. So Jesus says, if that happens to you, expose the oppression by actually offering to go a second mile. Not because you have to, but because you can. Surprise him by serving him. And then in case we still thought we were off the hook, Jesus goes from these examples of social degradation and political oppression to something a bit more mundane, not getting paid back. If someone borrows money from you and doesn't pay you back, don't avoid them. Don't go on the offense. Let them borrow money from you again. Now, Jesus is not saying these things so that we can twist them into support of abusive or wrong behavior. And I want to say clearly that if someone is harassing you or harming you, you should seek safety. But what Jesus is saying with all of these is be creative. Surprise the people who do wrong to you. And in fact, your readiness to not get payback will expose injustice and wrongdoing for what it is. Don't act like there's no conflict, but don't go on the offense. Find a third way. Give people an opportunity to realize the wrong that they have done without you needing to hurt them back. This is the way that the priest in Les Miserables treats Jean Valjean. I'm sure it's a familiar scene to any of you that love the musical or the movie, but, or the book. Um, Jean Valjean is newly released from prison, and he is given a bed and a meal by a parish priest. And in the middle of the night, Jean wakes up, and he steals all the silver, and he runs away. The next day, though, Jean is caught by the police, And when he's brought before the priest, rather than saying, yep, that's the man who stole my stuff, beat him up and throw him in jail, the priest says, Jean, I meant to give you the candlesticks too. You forgot those. Please take them. Put them in your pack. The priest doesn't avoid the conflict. He doesn't go on the offense. But his superior generosity actually exposes Jean Valjean's misdeeds even more. 
but in a way that leads John towards a life of restoration. This is the kind of non-retaliation that Jesus has in mind whenever he's talking here. And after raising the bar there, Jesus goes on to raise the bar on the law of love. Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And here he's actually not directly quoting the Old Testament. The saying had probably become commonly used, a part of the way people talked, but nowhere in Israel's law does it say to hate your enemy. It also doesn't say to love your enemy either. The Old Testament law just says, love your neighbor, meaning for the most part, other Israelites. Love the people who are like you. The law actually leaves it a bit ambiguous uh, what actually enemy love is supposed to look like at all. And here Jesus makes it clear that love is no longer just for the neighbor, but love is for the enemy too. And based on what Jesus has just said, enemy here could mean all kinds of things for the disciples. It could mean Roman occupiers, it could mean Gentiles, it could mean people who discredit your honor, it could mean Cousin Joe who comes around again asking for money, it could be people who persecute the disciples for following Jesus. So whether political or personal or spiritual, Jesus just assumes that the disciples will have enemies. And no matter what form they take, Jesus says, you're not off the hook. Love them. And this time, Jesus just gives us one snapshot of what it looks like. He says, try praying for them. Pray for your enemies. Often, the only realistic first step of loving an enemy is to pray for them. And with prayer, Jesus isn't asking us to focus on changing our enemy. He's asking us to be open to changing ourselves. Talking with God in prayer is the one place where we might maybe kind of sort of start to feel something like love for our enemies. And maybe when we pray for them, new creative ideas will come to us about what it looks like to love them and desire their blessing. Just as before, this snapshot of obedience isn't meant to be comprehensive, but it is an example, and it's a pretty good starting place. Now, let's be real. These teachings are hard. They completely offend our notions of what is fair. And if you're like me, when you hear these words of Jesus, you immediately start looking for a loophole. You imagine scenarios where someone would do something that is so wrong that you think, how could I not retaliate? Or could I ever love someone who fill in the blank? This word from Jesus feels like impossibly bad advice, bad social skills, bad survival strategy. This is hard. It is so hard for us to put down our swords because so often it feels like dying. But Jesus is in the business of bringing life from death and his commands are for our joy. So how do we get there? 
How do we stop looking for loopholes and begin to feel like these commands contain something of good news, something that could bring us life and joy? In order to get there, I think we need two things. First, we need stories of people that are living this out, stories of imperfect saints that show us the possibilities of what creative enemy love can look like. And second, we need what Jesus tells us here about the perfect character of his Father. So two things, we need stories of people who are doing it, and we need to know the perfect character of the Father. So first, a story. If you want to get a sense of the power and the possibility of what nonviolent enemy love can look like, one of the best places to start is to look at stories from the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. As many of you know, this was a movement grown from within African-American Christian churches and communities that overtly challenged racial segregation and discrimination, but in ways that were clearly nonviolent, precisely because of what Jesus says here. This was a central part of the message of Martin Luther King Jr., who we just celebrated on Monday, whose life we remembered, whose memory still calls us to work for what he called the beloved community because the work isn't done. But 63 years ago, King was a pastor in Montgomery, Alabama, and was at the forefront of leading a bus boycott with the agenda of desegregating the bus system in Montgomery. If you remember Rosa Parks, she had just challenged and stayed in the, in the front where the white people were allowed to sit. And on January 30th, 1956, King had just finished a sermon at his church when he got word that his house had been bombed while his wife and his little girl were there at home. So he rushed home, checked out the damage, realized thankfully his wife and his daughter were okay. He checked in with the white mayor and the white police chief and the white reporters and some other white city leaders that were there. And at the same time, he noticed that on the scene there was a growing crowd from the African-American community and justifiably, they were unhappy. They were really upset. And King decided at that moment to get up and address the crowd that was gathering. And this is what he said. He said, we cannot solve this problem through retaliatory violence. We must meet violence with nonviolence. We must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. Jesus still cries out in words that echo across the centuries, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, pray for those that despitefully use you. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. If there was ever a moment to encourage people to take up arms in defense of their rights, wouldn't this have been it? I mean, his daughter was in the house. If ever there was a moment for King to think, this whole enemy love thing, I can't do it. The cost is too high. This would have been the moment. And in that moment, instead of what doing, doing what seemed 
logical or fair or even in the best interest of his survival, King preached nonviolent love and he actually got rid of his gun. Not to condone what had happened, not at all, but to say, yes, this is wrong. Yes, this is hateful. And precisely because it is wrong and hateful, we will not respond with wrong and hate. If King and others could do that, in a situation that's very different than what a lot of us face, I realize, but if they could do that, then what possibilities does that break open for us whenever we think about loving our enemies, even if those enemies are the coworker that undercut you for a promotion, or the girls at school who said mean things about you behind your back, or the sibling that had more opportunity than you, or the parent whose best just wasn't anywhere near good enough. You could think too about the folks that have different political views than you, the people that are from a different background from you, the people that you've been taught to be afraid of. You could even think about the people who think about you or us as the enemy. Stories from the cloud of witnesses remind us that in all these scenarios, we are not off the hook. And loving our enemies is actually a lived possibility, not just an impractical ideal. So we need stories. But still, all of this is too hard and too impossible if we mishear what Jesus says about the character of his father, his perfection, his perfect character. When Jesus says that his father is perfect, he's not meaning perfect in the way that we think of someone as faultless or flawless, although God certainly is those things. But what Jesus has in mind here is God's fullness and completeness in showing mercy and goodness, regardless of any notion of someone deserving it. So what does that father's perfection look like? Jesus says it looks like the way he makes sun shine and rain fall on the just and on the unjust. So on Roman soldiers and Jewish lawkeepers, on civil rights leaders and white supremacists, on me and on you. With all of us, God is perfect in showing love, unconditional and totally complete. And the place where we see that perfection the most clearly is in the story of Jesus himself. In Jesus, God loved his enemies so much that he sent his only son. And Jesus is the one who, when mocked, did not respond with violence. He is the one, when he was spit on and slapped, did not retaliate. He is the one who went an extra mile with the cross of Roman oppression strapped across his back. He is the one who from the cross prayed for his enemies. And you know who those enemies are. You know where I'm going. It's me and it's you. In the grips of sin, we are hopelessly set in enmity against the loving and generous ways of God. But it's right at that moment that God shows up. Listen to the words of Romans 5. 
Paul is writing. He says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Only if you know this can you possibly begin to take Jesus seriously about loving your enemies. The only way that loving your enemies makes any sense at all is if you believe God is the greatest enemy lover of all and that you, in fact, are an enemy who God's love has made his child. This is the perfection of the Father that we are called to embody. And it is possible for us because we are on the receiving end of it. It's easy to feel like loving your enemies is pretty overwhelming when you start to think about it. So take heart and remember, Jesus gives us all a great place to start. It's prayer. So as a way to close, I'm gonna ask all of you to take a few moments in silence and ask God to show you someone that you are not off the hook from loving. And then after a few moments, I'm gonna invite us into a collective prayer that we can say together, prayers for those people that God brings to our mind. So take a few moments now. Will you pray with me? God, our Heavenly Father, your love for us is deep and vast beyond all measure. While we were your enemies, you sent your Son to die for us. And for that reason, we lift up to you now those who we know as our enemies. We pray that you would make your goodness known to them and that you would lead them to the truth. We pray that you would deliver us from hatred and desire for revenge. Show us creative ways of engaging that neither avoid conflict nor go on the offensive. We pray in the name of Jesus, the one who prayed for his enemies.